Welcome to Canada's National Bible Hour. This is Brian Albrecht, your host and president of Mission Go. Today we have the second part of the Great Commandment. It's found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, which says, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We're first supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. And the second part is to love our neighbor. We need to love everyone. We need to be open to their cares and their concerns and their heartaches. But we're also open to the opportunity to share our faith with them and try to encourage them to receive Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. And that's one way we can love our neighbor. We at Global Outreach Mission, we try to meet needs in people's lives. We drill wells, we give food, uh, we give medical care. We all do all sorts of things to show love to our neighbor. But we also do that so that we spiritually can minister to them and share the gospel with them and see them come to Christ. And I think all of us are supposed to be doing that in this day and age. And as the age gets darker and darker, our light shines brighter and brighter and we'll have more and more opportunities to share our faith. We need to pray every day for divine appointments so that we have opportunities to share the precious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. radio edition of Global Times. Today we have in our studio Dennis Campbell, who's our director of development. He's been overseeing the ministry in, in Sierra Leone and some of the problems we, we've been having over there and some of the opportunities we have by bringing food there and, and sharing the gospel. And so, Dennis, why don't you continue to tell us about how spiritually things are going in the country? As I mentioned last week, uh, Brian, the local church and our educational Christian schools have been a key factor to the delivery uh, system that we set up to get into the homes and provide the food, which has really clearly demonstrated the love of Christ uh, to these people in a very practical way. So much so that we've had many decisions from even 
uh, the various Muslim communities to begin to see this love shown to them. Nobody else is there taking care of them and concerned with them. Uh, our church attendance and our gatherings in the smaller communities have just doubled in numbers. And we're just hearing some phenomenal stories from our pastors about the impact that this is having, building relationships with people coming in. As you know, we've received letters right here in the head office from even professions of conversions uh, because they understand that this Christ is a Christ of love and mercy and forgiveness. They are now listening to the word. We're, we're into territories that previously were unopened to us, but because we're there providing the real physical need for the people, it's become a platform for the reaching out of the gospel. Yeah, it's interesting to me that one of the best evangelistic tools we've had in the country, because the country is 70% Muslim, is the fact that when we meet physical needs, like drilling wells and uh, helping communities to have clean water so that they, they can have better health. And, and from that, um, we go forward and, and preach the gospel and, and plant churches in all these villages where we put a well. And now we have the privilege of uh, feeding these folks. How that just opens up the gospel. They're so thankful for for sustenance, so thankful that their, their families can, can continue to, to thrive and get enough to eat. And also, uh, food also helps with the immune system and the fact that it helps them so that they don't get sick virus if, they, if their immune systems are stronger. So these have been just really uh, divine opportunities that we've had to try to meet physical needs, and we're seeing a great spiritual uh, outpouring. People receive Christ as their Savior. Why don't you tell them about some of those uh, notes we have? I'm especially encouraged about one of them. <laughs> the, well, the, we've heard uh, from many of our teachers in our school understanding that when the schools were closed down to stop the spread of the disease, it was a very correct thing to do from a medical standpoint. But that left the children out of school. That left the teachers without any salary and any means. And if you understand that these people are, are virtually living day to day mm -hmm. uh, with what they make, it became very quick that these families, and particularly these teachers that were out in these communities, were in a very desperate situation because the only thing they had was their teaching of the children. And so as we went out to the community to deal with those that were in medical crisis, we found many homes and we were who were also facing this type of crisis. And as we reached out, we included them in our support system. And we literally have received letters from those that were previously in the Muslim faith who have now profess that they want to follow Christ, uh, that no one has ever demonstrated a caring love for them. And uh, we're reaching out now with our trained pastors to, to build the support systems uh, to help that. You know, it. you mentioned earlier about what we've been able to do in the physical. And of course, we're really there to plant the church. Mm -hmm. But it has not gone unnoticed by many of those of all faiths or even tribal beliefs, that the areas that we're having an impact are not the same areas that are having these health problems. Uh, prior to this disease, the districts that we've been working in had the lowest number of cholera outbreaks the previous year because of the sanitation and the clean water and the changed living styles that are going along with the teaching of living more scripturally. Amen. 
Well, the one letter that, that really blessed me was from a man who said he's changing denominations. Yes. He's a Muslim, and he said, uh, I'm changing from the denomination of the Muslim to the denomination of Christ. And and that really uh, really blessed me to read that one. Of course, I was blessed by reading a lot of the other ones that have received Christ, and the whole reason was because uh, they saw the love of Christ uh, through the distribution of food. One of the things that this program, this horrible disease, if you will, has exposed is that there is a very strong influence of the satanic spiritual world of worship in that country. And it's a difficult one to minister to because it's called, they call them secret societies and they're kept secret. But many of the things that they do in that practice were what actually helped the disease spread. So in many cases, when these witch doctors and these, these people were uh, trying to explain away, they became the carriers of the disease and it became exposed, it exposed them and the lie around their practices, which again has been another wave of people who have come seeking that correct truth. Yeah, the, the Lord's just doing a great work. And I'm thinking that maybe, I'm praying that, <laughs> that maybe the um, secret society impact will be lessened in that country. Well, thanks, Dennis, for allowing us to uh, get another glimpse of Sierra Leone and, and the way the Lord is actually working there. It's just a real privilege to be a part of his program of, of helping people physically so that spiritually they, they see Christ and they come to a saving knowledge of him. Thank you so much for listening to Canada's National Bible Hour. We thank you so much for your prayers and for your financial support. This month, we're offering a wonderful booklet, Where's My Miracle? by Joni Erickson Tata. It's, it's really a, a pamphlet on unanswered prayer, and she talks, out, talks about her own journey with an unanswered prayer, the fact that she was injured and became a quadriplegic and asked for healing and had people pray for healing. She expected healing, but she wasn't healed. And then it talks about many of the scriptures that she used and some of the scriptures that she claimed. And then she talks about how God and his sovereignty did not answer them but gave her other things that uh, blessed her life. And at the end, she was thanking the Lord for even her dilemma. And I think it's a book that can be helpful to a lot of us. It has a, it has a lot of the Word of God and uh, scriptural principles that I think all of us need to, to learn and understand. And at the end, the Lord is working in all our lives. He just does it in different ways for each and every one of us. It's a book that I highly recommend, uh, especially if you have unanswered prayers that you'd like to get the answers for, or if you have friends who have unanswered prayers, it can be a great encouragement to them and a great blessing to them. You can get your copy of this pamphlet entitled, Where's My Miracle, or just Miracle, to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario, 72R7A7, or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo, New York, 14231. My latest son is sinking fast. My race is nearly run. My strongest trials now are past. My triumph is begun. Oh, come.
Today's message is from Dr. Fred Hartman and is a continuation of his series. Prody copies are available upon request. In our last six messages, we've been looking at events taking place today that clearly point out to us that we could be very close to the end-time events that will take place following the rapture of the church. We've tried to show events that are predicted in the Bible to happen after the rapture that are rapidly beginning to fall into place now. We've seen how the Jewish people are returning to the land of Israel. They became a nation in a day. They have fought war after war against insurmountable odds and won. Hebrew, their own language, revived from the dead, is now their official language. They are prepared and ready to build the third temple. Today, I would like to begin to look at what is going on behind the scenes relative to preparation for these end-time events. The next thing we should consider has to do with the Sanhedrin. They are also ready to build this third temple. Before we share what this is all about, we need to explain what the Sanhedrin is. While Moses was leading the children of Israel in the wilderness, the administration load became so heavy that God devised a plan to assist him. We read about it in Numbers 11, 16, and 17. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come upon down and talk with you there. I will take of the Spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. In this passage, God delegated some of Moses' authority to men with leadership qualities to carry some of the administrative load Moses had been handling. This was really the birth of what we know as the Sanhedrin. The word Sanhedrin comes from a Greek word meaning assemble or council. Take note, they were to gather around the tent of meeting and later the temple. They met daily and actually acted as the Supreme Court. They had the last word in everything that was before the Jewish people. In the New Testament, they were involved in the crucifixion and trial of Jesus. We see this in Matthew 26, 59, and 60, even though the word Sanhedrin is not used. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought the false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. We know that the Sanhedrin was in existence until 70 A.D., when Israel fell to the Roman armies. Throughout the years, there have been several attempts to restore it, but all of them have failed. In 2004, a group of 71 rabbis met in Tiberias, where the Sanhedrin was disbanded and formed a group called the Developing Sanhedrin. 
They have moved into the court system of Israel again and act as the Supreme Court in matters of Jewish law. And what is one of their major goals? They want to rebuild the temple. Now let's go on one step beyond this. Many of your Jewish friends have as their last name Cohen or Levi. Do you know that those names came from the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament? Cohen actually means priest in the Hebrew. The present-day Sanhedrin has searched out every male born in Israel by that name and sought to find those who would qualify biblically to be priests in a rebuilt temple. Three of the qualifications are they must have been born in Israel, are pure in that they've never been in a relationship with a woman, and last, that they have never touched a dead person. They actually have a complete database of men who would qualify to become priests for the rebuilt temple. Now let's take another step forward. The Sanhedrin has not only obtained a database of these who are qualified to serve in the priesthood at the rebuilt temple, but they've established a school to train these men as to how to exactly perform the rituals necessary to implement the services and sacrifices just as was done before the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. There's another major factor that must be considered here in relationship to the construction of the Third Temple. Both President Donald Trump and President Vladimir Putin have visited the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. Mr. Trump prayed there and also placed a written prayer in the crevices between the huge stones. This is a customary practice done by the Jewish people, as well as visitors from many countries. I have also been told that Mr. Putin, being of a Russian Orthodox background, crossed himself and prayed there. It is also claimed that while he was there, that he was very interested in seeing a temple built there on the Temple Mount. This becomes very interesting in light of end-time Bible prophecy. Behind what we see out in the open, there are other events taking place regarding the Temple Mount and the rebuilding of the Temple. There have been meetings held between the Pope, Muslim leaders, and the Jews. They have been trying to devise a plan whereby the temple would be rebuilt, the Dome of the Rock left in place, and Catholicism would also be able to lay claim to the Temple Mount. If this would ever be accomplished, the Temple Mount would be known as a place of prayer for all nations. Folks, this is exactly what the Bible predicts, that in the end times there will be a one-world religion. For a moment now, let's turn our attention away from the Temple Mount and consider what is happening politically across the globe today. There's a very well-orchestrated plan to turn the world away from nationalism to globalism. Leaders want everything to be put on a one-world basis. 
They favor the UN. They want worldwide climate control, a World Health Organization, and so forth. I first noticed this in 2001 when I flew to London on a British Airways plane. They called themselves the One World Airline. How much this position has grown today to where there is talk of a One World Church. Isn't it amazing that the Apostle John had much to say about this in Revelation chapter 17? Let's see what John has to say. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. When we see the name Babylon in the Bible, our minds immediately go back to the city of Babylon and the Tower of Babel as recorded in Genesis. It is a picture of a false religious system and is the attempt by man to reach God by his own efforts. In Revelation 17, Babylon is seen at a time when it reaches its pinnacle as a worldwide religious system during the first half of the tribulation period. This evil woman portrayed here presents to us a prostitute religion that has affected people, multitudes, and languages. John was informed by the angel that the kings of, or leaders of the world had committed adultery with her. This means that they had fallen prey to the wiles of this false religious system, which symbolizes, which is symbolized in this woman. We know this religious system of the end times is not of God because this woman held a golden cup filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Here we have a picture presented to us of God's evaluation of this system, as well as all man-made religious systems of all time. They are an abomination to God and should be to us as well. Now, going back to the point we were making earlier, it is apparent that there is, at the present time, the beginning of a movement to bring all religions together into one. Remember what we said earlier, that there's a movement to rebuild the temple? 
and have all people of the world come there to pray, though this may only be a movement in its embryonic form. At this time, it is amazing how quickly the concept is growing. I believe we are seeing in this movement the preparation for a one-world religious system. It could not necessarily take place before that false religion could reach to its fruition in the tribulation. How long could it be before these end-time events could fall into place? It could be as much it could be much later than we might think. I remember so well that on Sunday afternoons, my father and grandfather sitting around discussing Bible prophecy. I heard them talking about a day when Israel would become a king nation again. They talked about the rebuilding of a temple. They spoke of how the surrounding nations would hate them. They would develop a one-world religion, a one-world government, eventually a one-world leader. They said that leader would be the Antichrist. Both of these men were not Bible scholars. My father only had an eighth grade education when he had to go to work. My grandfather never finished first grade and was illiterate. Yet the things that they were talking about are literally falling into place before our eyes today. They had insight beyond their natural abilities. As a teen, I became president of our youth group and was taught a work system to get to heaven. One day, one of the fellows in our group stopped coming, and when I saw him, I asked him why. He told me that he had trusted Christ as his Savior and would no longer be coming. This aroused my curiosity, and I began to search the scriptures to see what he was talking about. A year or so later, I attended a Bible conference in Pennsylvania where the Spirit of God convicted me of my sin and I trusted Christ as my personal Savior. Now as I see the events leading to the end times, I have no fear, for I am assured that God has everything in his control, and they are working out just as he planned. My hope and longing is that very soon, as I watch these things unfold, we who know Christ as our Savior will meet him in the air. As I bring these thoughts to a close today, it seems we are so close to the end-time events predicted in the Bible. I would ask you a personal question. What are you depending upon for your salvation? Is it your good works? Is it because you were baptized or a faithful church member? All these things will amount to nothing when you stand before Christ. The only thing that matters is whether or not you've trusted Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, I pray that you will receive him now before it is eternally too late. I trust the message you just heard will be a great blessing to you, and I pray that you can apply some of the principles that were taught today in your own life. And I pray that you'll continue to be growing in your faith and your relationship with Christ. There may be others who are listening to this and don't have a personal relationship with the God of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only Savior, 
The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible also teaches that the wages of our sin is death. That's spiritual death. That's separation from God. That's eternal punishment because you rejected God's salvation. He went to the cross. He took our place. We deserve to pay for each and every one of our sins because God's a holy God and he can't be in the presence of sin. He suffered and he died, but he rose on the third day. And what a wonderful blessing that is. It means that the sacrifice he made for you and for me has been accepted by God the Father. And now we have life and life more abundantly as we come into relationship with him, as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Where's My Miracle by Joni Erickson Tata, or just Miracle. And you can write to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario, L2R7A7, or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo 14231. You can also find our broadcasts on our website at missiongo.org. That's M-I-S-S-I-O-N-G-O dot O-R-G. We're so thankful for those of you who pray for us each day. That, that allows us to continue to broadcast Cas National Bible Hour over the airwaves. Thank you so much, and I trust the Lord will bless you throughout this next week.